Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice Chianti. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hello and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy uh, what Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa, whatever the other ones are. I don't know. Whatever. It's a uh, holiday season. And if you were listening to this from pretty much anywhere in the United States, holy cow, is it cold. <laughs> it is freezing. We had this big uh, thing past couple of days where it's cold everywhere and it's freakishly cold everywhere. And, uh, you know, aside from being painfully cold, it is prime prime ham making weather and ideally i should have put this episode out like a month and a half ago so that if you wanted to make your own holiday ham you would be able to do so following this tutorial in time for christmas but you know what easter's coming up you have plenty of time to make an easter ham or hear me out on this one consider making a ham just because you know Oh, it's February 3rd. Let's make a ham. June 7th. Hmm, sounds like a ham day to me. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, so we're going to make a ham. We're going to make this. This is your bog standard, traditional American style, brined, smoked, sugar glazed ham. And it is really, really good. Really good. Super duper good. You'll love it. I think you'll love it. I think you'll, uh, I think you'll appreciate it immensely. So the first thing you need to do is you need to get a quote unquote fresh ham, an uncured ham, a green ham. All of these words, all these terms, they mean the same thing. It means uh, basically a leg of pork that has not been cured, smoked, cooked in any way. That's what you need to get. If you have a butcher shop nearby or one that you're like, hey, I bet I can get a really good leg of ham uh, from this place. Give them a call ahead of time, a week ahead of time, a week in advance, and see if you can place an order, make a reservation, whatever. I don't know. Because increasingly, you just walk into a butcher shop, be like, I would like a whole fresh ham. Oh, they probably don't have it. You know, it's not like this isn't something that most people do, you know? And if they do, it could have been frozen for the past 37 years. Who knows? So uh, you want to call ahead and get it. In most cases, it's going to be skin off. You know, it's going to be skinned, which is ideal. I mean, you can like they're definitely like really good artisanal ham makers where you can get skin on country style ham, glazed ham, whatever. Well, I guess it probably wouldn't be glazed if the skin's on. But here's the thing. Generally speaking, you're just going to remove that skin either before cooking or immediately afterwards. So if you can get it without the skin, it'll save you a step. And even if it comes with the skin, it's really not that difficult to get the skin off. It just depends if you get it off in one big sheet and it's really even and, uh, and neat, or it's going to look like it was ripped off by a Wolverine. Who knows? Okay. But you need to get a ham. And if you have a good rapport with your butcher and you can talk to him, be like, Hey, I need a fresh ham, a whole leg, preferably skinned. And if you can cut the hawk off, that'd be great. Now, when it comes to cutting the hawk off, they really should be able to do this with a knife. If you stand your ham up, if you, if you have to do this yourself, I'll let you know. So you stand your ham, ham up so that the trotter, the hoof end is poking straight up in the air, right? 
and you find the point behind the knee, like in, in the knee joint, the it would be it'd be like the concave side of the knee. And if you cut 45 degrees downward into that knee joint, your knife should terminate right in the junction between the, the lower leg bones and the upper leg and the femur bone, basically. And then if you're using a boning knife, you can kind of slide it in between those bones, cut the ligaments, cut the connective tissue, whatever. Boom, that lower leg comes right off. It's really cool to do. It's very satisfying. But I do understand that if you're having the butcher shop do this, there's a very good chance that they're just going to take it, run it across a saw and cut it out because it, it literally takes one and a half seconds on the saw. It's like, whoop, and it's done. Whereas with the knife, if you, if you are very adept, it might take like five seconds. But if you don't do it very often, you could spend a half hour trying to figure out where that, where that knee joint is and get that leg off of there. But anyway, you have to procure yourself a whole fresh ham. And then from there, it's really simple, but mostly it's a waiting game. Okay, you got a waiting waiting game uh, when it comes to brining the ham. That's a big wait. And then smoking the ham. Very slow, very slow, yes. Okay, so let's talk about our brine. Let's say you have your whole ham. It's ready to go, okay? There is nothing else that you need to do with it. You just need to turn this pork into ham. Well, you're going to make a brine and a lot of recipes will tell you, hey, here's, here's the recipe for a gallon of brine. You do, you need so much more than a gallon of brine. I mean, ideally you need at least three gallons of brine. It depends on how big your ham is, obviously. In a very small ham, you could get away with a gallon of brine, but even so you should probably make at least two gallons. So if you check the show notes, you'll see the imager album. I'll put a link in there to injectors uh, for special ingredients, probably Yet another link to curing salt number one, because it's super important for this. It is it is what makes a ham a ham. But then also, I'll, I'll put a link to a YouTube video that I made for oh, oh, the shag bar hickory syrup that we'll be glazing the ham with. And then, yeah, so anyway, we'll have we'll have links to ejectors, to the special ingredients, we'll have the pictures, all that kind of stuff, whatever. And then I'll link to the glaze as opposed to explaining, you know, the whole glaze process in the podcast or whatever. But you definitely should go into this expecting to make at least three gallons of brine for your ham, okay? And also, if you look up these ham recipes, a lot of times they're saying like, oh, you make a gallon of brine, you soak, you soak your ham in the brine for about a month, and you're good to go. You can do that. I've done that myself. However, there's a very high likelihood that the cure will not penetrate evenly or to the bone, if you do it this way, which means as you get deeper into the ham and you're making your slices and your cuts, eventually you're going to get this tie-dye pattern of meat where, you know, part of it is ham and the other portion of it is just pork roast. And that's always dodgy, you know, so you definitely want to use the injector for this one and you want to inject very liberally. But let's get to this uh, brine recipe because it is uh, among the simplest things in the world. For each gallon of water, you need one and a half cups of kosher salt, two cups of brown sugar, and uh, six to eight teaspoons of curing salt number one. Pink salt number one, Instacure number one, prog powder number one, all the great names. If you go back to last week, we did uh, corned beef and pastrami. Episode number one, I think we did bacon, uh, we did duck confit, 
probably episode three or four. I don't remember exactly. Oh, we did hot dogs one time. <laughs> all of these recipes use the pig salt number one, the curing salt number one, all the different names. What that is is sodium nitrite, which is like a heat activated prophylactic against botulism. Realistically, you know, with a whole muscle like this, with a whole leg of pork, the threat of botulism is exceptionally low because botulism grows in a couple environment or an environment that meets a couple criteria. One, low acid. You definitely have a low acid product here. It's just raw pork, right? It's not particularly acidic at all. Anaerobic, right? Technically, deep inside of the leg of pork is an anaerobic environment. There's no oxygen in there. There's no air. It's not exposed to the to the air or the elements. However, C. botulinum bacteria is like an environmental uh, organism. So uh, there really isn't a transport mechanism for it to get into the center of a leg of pork, uh, barring, you know, perforation, stabbing, injection. So you will be injecting brine into the center, and that would be the best opportunity for C. botulinum to get pressed into this anaerobic environment. Uh, but that's not why you're using the insecure number one. The reason is the rosy pink color, the change in texture, the hammy flavor. Those are all things that are primary when it comes to using the nitrites in this recipe, because with whole muscle cures, botulism really isn't that big of a deal, you know? But anyway, that's, uh, that's your brine there. Uh, what did I say? One and a half cups of kosher salt, two cups of brown sugar, uh, between six and eight teaspoons. Really what you want is like 42 grams of this pig salt or curing salt for each gallon of brine. Um, if you do it at eight tablespoons, uh, or I'm sorry, teaspoons, geez, look at the, look at the recipe. Cause if I say, if I keep jumping back and forth between teaspoon and tablespoon, it could confuse you. It is teaspoons, eight teaspoons. I'll say it one more time, eight teaspoons. But check the show notes because I'll have it in print there. I'll have it in text. But yeah, that's uh, that's basically your brine. You mix that up. I mean, you want to mix this cold. You don't want to boil the water and then mix it. Yes, it will. It will make everything dissolve easier, but it will also activate that curing salt and you might lose some of the nitrite to evaporation or percolation and you don't want to do that so you want to mix that up cold compared to the brine that we used for the pastrami there isn't as much solid matter to dissolve in the water for this one so you'll have an easier go at you know getting this to to mix up clear so to speak it'll definitely have a, a reddish brown tinge to it from all the brown sugar but you'll be good to go all right. Now for the glaze, you can totally just use brown sugar and do like a dry rub of brown sugar, whatever you bake this at the end, or you can glaze it with a simple syrup of brown sugar and mustard, maybe a little bit of garlic while you're smoking it. Um, you know, these are all personal preferences. Me, I like to use the shag bark hickory syrup uh, mixed with Dijon mustard and I start glazing that halfway through the smoking period. And then when it comes time to actually cook the ham, I will glaze it a second or not a second time because each glazing is like, you know, I'll drizzle it on there seven or eight times while we're smoking it. But these are two glazing sessions, so to speak. And the idea with the glaze is that you want to get some sweetness on the outside. You want to get a little bit of a candy crust. Like you could, you could really get kind of a, uh, anal retentive about the glaze and try to encapsulate the whole thing in a solid shell of crystallized sugar, kind of like a, uh, 
like a Tootsie Pop, but with ham in the middle instead of Tootsie Roll, which would be a fantastic, a fantastic Tootsie Pop. Absolutely. But, you know, to each their own. Some people like to do mix a little bit of orange juice with the brown sugar and just kind of coat that on there as a thick sludge. Other people like to make a, wa a more watery glaze or whatever, but whatever. So I said that there were two big waiting periods. The first one is during the brine. What you want to do is you want to use an injector once you have your brine made up. If you can either place your ham into a very clean five-gallon bucket or uh, like into a meat lug or so, even just a really big mixing bowl or something like that and have your brine ready to go and separate, you can suck that into your injector. And then what you want to do, number one, is make sure that the brine is injected along the bone. So what I start off doing is, you know, the, the, the main bone running down the middle of the ham, I will insert the needle parallel to that bone as deep as I can from one end and then press out the, the brine inside the ham along the bone while, while I'm withdrawing the needle so that I'm leaving a trail of brine right along the bone. And I'll do that maybe at four points at north, south, east, and west around that bone. Okay. And then at, after I do some other things, um, I'll flip it over and go and, and enter the ham from the opposite end, still parallel to the bone and do the same thing. That ensures that you get a bunch of brine into the center mass of the ham. What's going to happen is uh, you're, the, the, the salt, the, there's going to be an osmosis action, an osmotic action to equalize the distribution of salt between the outside brine and the inside of the ham, which means that the brine in the center of the ham is going to work its way outward going from the center bone out to the surface, trying to escape into the salty brine that's out there. Meanwhile, the unsalted parts of the ham are going to draw that salty brine in from the outside and try to bring that into the center to the bone. And hopefully if you get enough brine injected in there, you're going to have uh, a meeting point where the whole thing is going to be exposed to brine at some point over the ensuing weeks, and you're going to have a fully cured ham all the way through. So once you've injected along the bone, then you want to essentially lay the, the ham down so that the, the largest part of the mass, the mound of the ham, the ham, the leg of a, a pig is kind of oblong and it has a big, thick mm, gluteus maximus muscle on one side. And that's going to be, you know, the what I'm calling the top of the ham at this point. Once you have your ham laid down that way with your injector, you want to inject at like one to two inch intervals in sort of a checkerboard pattern across you know, the top of the ham, injecting as much brine as you can into each one of those insertion points, flip the ham over onto the, I guess it, it technically it wouldn't be convex because it's not like, um, it's not curved inward. It's just sort of flat. Do the same thing on that side. Basically, the point is you want to inject as much brine into the ham as possible. Now, you can saturate a ham with a shocking amount of brine. Like if you have a 15-pound ham, you can very realistically get almost an entire gallon of brine injected into that thing, which means that it's going to add... You know, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds, plus you have a bunch of salt and sugar dissolved in there. So you can get like another almost 10 pounds of mass injected in this ham. If you do that, don't worry about it because during the, the soaking period, a lot of that brine is going to escape, which is fine because we do want it to escape. We don't want a water balloon of, of ham brine. We want actually a ham to eat. So by doing that, it's going to expose all the muscle fibers to the sodium nitrite, to the salt, to the sugar, uh, and it'll 
it'll get a nice even cure on it. But yeah, inject liberally and remember that no matter how big this this meat water balloon is going to expand, it is going to express a lot of that liquid in the brine to the point where it's not going to be that big whenever you pull it out of there. Okay. So once you have it all nicely injected, the rest of your brine, you're I like to cure, I like to brine hams in like a five gallon bucket. The ham goes in there, the brine gets poured in, the brine should cover the ham completely. If it doesn't, make some more, make some more. It's only four ingredients, right? Salt, brown sugar, sodium nitrite, water. Easy breezy. You can make an extra gallon. Not that big of a deal. So get it in there. Uh, you want to refrigerate that for three to four weeks. Seems like a long time. It totally is. That'll ensure that you get like a nice uh, equal cure on the ham and that it'll 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 reach equilibrium. You're not, you're not going to pull it out after 30 days and have it be on an, on an uptake cycle where it's drawing <laughs> brine into it. At that point, it's going to be as hammy as it's ever going to get, right? So you get it into the bucket there, uh, you get your brine in there, you need to refrigerate it for this 30, 21 to 30 day, eh, blah, blah, I can't talk, might say my face is frozen from being outside. Um, you want it to be refrigerated for the 21 to 30 day brining period. So why is this such a great time for making hands? Because it's so cold outside. And you don't have to put this outside. It, I mean, even with the salt content, whatever whatever it's zero degrees with a negative 30 wind chill, it still could freeze, you know. But, you know, out in the shed, out in the barn, out in the garage, chances are you can find a place where it's under 40 degrees uh, without it being negative 30 degrees. And that would be an ideal place to let this rest and brine if you don't have fridge space. If you do happen to have a fridge out in the garage, stick it in there, you know, that'll work great. So after 30 days of, I'm calling it 30, it can be 21 days. If you inject it very aggressively, it could be as few as 14 days. But since it's now the day after Christmas, you might as well be planning this for Easter. Give yourself a full month. It'll be perfect. All right. So when you remove it from the brine, you're going to discard the brine. It has done what it's supposed to do. You're done with it. You don't need to, you don't need to baste with it or do anything else. There's nothing to be done with the brine. Get rid of it. A lot of people will say, you know, let this rest uncovered on a metal rack over a cookie sheet in the fridge for overnight or 24 hours or whatever. The reason you do that with these smoked products is because it develops a pellicle, which is like the surface fat and protein as it evaporates in a cold, low humidity environment like a refrigerator. It gets sticky. And uh, that causes uh, smoke to adhere to the surface better than what it would if you just put it in wet. However, smoking a big ham, my hams were like 20 pounds each and I did three of them this year. Smoking them takes a long time to the point where is if I had one that was left to sit in the fridge overnight and get develop a pellicle and another one that I pulled out of the brine, literally out of the brine and into the smoker, you know, eight hours later, 10 hours later, you're not going to notice, or you won't be able to tell which one had the pellicle and which one didn't, you know? So it's, it's mostly irrelevant. So I don't do it. Okay. However, there is a little bit of preparation before you smoke that ideally you should do. I mean, you don't have to, but it's nice. One is on that top part of the ham, you know, like I said, the, the mounded, you know, the, the, 
the greater mass hemisphere of the ham. I'm trying to come up with words to describe what I'm saying. It's not it's not super effective, but hopefully you know what I mean. Uh, the butt cheek muscle of the ham that has most of the fat on it, with a nice sharp knife, cut a quarter inch to a half inch grid, a cross hatch pattern, a checkerboard, if you will, into that fat when you smoke it and slowly bring it up to temperature. As that fat renders, all of those little slices are going to expand into valleys or canyons on the surface of the ham. The fat will run along that grid and it'll slow down its progress toward the edge of the ham to drip off. Additionally, as you glaze it midway through, this creates a, like a waffle surface to hold the glaze and to allow that sugar to sort of like caramelize and soak into the to the meat and get bound up with the fat. And also, it looks really cool. It's really nice. And last but not least, if you're making the ham, you get to you get to exploit this this cheat code. But those little squares, as they separate and stand up like a like a very dull hedgehog pattern. <laughs> Get the worst analogies in this in this episode. Um, those form these little crispy sugary salty caps of cooked pork fat and you can just pick it off and eat it and be like hmm yes this is going to be very good ham and nobody's going to notice nobody's going to notice if one or two of those are missing its little fat cap all right so definitely cut that grid into the surface of your ham and enjoy the the spoils of your effort by uh you know having a little bit of sweet, salty, fatty goodness, okay? So when it comes time to smoke your ham, uh, man, there's so many, so many ways to do it, you know? I have a smokehouse out there that's just, it's very analog. It is a corn crib shaped cedar building with a cinder block base and I make fire in the bottom and I put the ham up in the top. And that's how, that's how that works. If you're using an offset smoker, an electric smoker, a propane smoker, or whatever, a million different, very, a, a kettle grill with, you know, six briquettes of charcoal stuck over on the side. I don't know how you're doing this. Whatever you're doing, you want to try to hit moderate heat, you know, and this makes it easier whenever it's really cold too, because you don't have to worry about the temperature creeping up there too high. If you're doing this 4th of July weekend or something like that, it's like, oh man, this gr like this grill with no fire in it could potentially be 200 degrees by itself. And then, you know, you're just going to overshoot that whenever you start combusting material in there. Ideally, I think you're looking at smoking this at 200 degrees to 225 degrees until the center, the internal temperature is 155. Now, if the ham is small, you know, if it's a really small ham, that might take two hours. If you have a giant ham, you know, 20 pound ham like I did, it took 10 hours, you know, either way. Use your probe thermometer, try to get it up to an internal temperature of 155 degrees. And then if you want to take this directly out of the smoker and go straight to the table, more power to you. But boy, that really involves dialing in your smoking time. Like when I started smoking these, I'm like, oh, I have no idea how long this is going to take because it's a very imprecise smoking apparatus. But if you're using, you know, like a, a Bluetooth controlled uh, worm drive smoker that you can really dial in perfectly. You might be able to hit your done time, uh, you know, within 15 or 20 minutes. So you can definitely do that. A ham straight out of the smoker, one of the greatest things you'll ever eat. Otherwise, though, you'll probably run, remove this. 
allow it to cool down, wrap it up real tight in like saran wrap and and foil and refrigerate it until the day that you need it. You know, whether it's Easter, whether it's Christmas or you know, Tuesday, because that's when you want to have ham, whatever. Uh, and then bring it up to temperature in a moderate oven. You know, might start it at 250, maybe bring it up to 325. At some point, you're probably going to want to cover it in foil so that you don't get too many, you know, crispy black tips on those little fat islands. But aside from that, you know, reheating the ham is fairly simple. Because you brought it up to 155 initially, it's considered fully cooked. Um, the reason, you know, it's pork, you think, oh, what about, is this supposed to be like 165? Well, there's time temperature guides for each temperature level. 155, the amount of time that it takes for this big mass of meat to get up to 155, it is going to be at this elevated temperature for a significant period of time before cooling back down under, you know, a sterilizing temperature. So 155 for a period of time has the same effect as 165 instantly, so you'd be good to go, all right? So it's not like when you're reheating it on Easter day or or Christmas day that you have to do it at another 10 hours to get it up to 155. You know, you can do it to 135, 140, 125, whatever, whatever, it's up to you, but it'll be fully cooked and delicious, okay? So uh, that's basically it for ham. Uh, it is it is Christmas night, so I'm trying to finish this up quickly, but um, ham is, it's super easy. It just, it just takes time. If you have the space, if you have somewhere cold to keep it for three or four weeks, if you have a way to smoke it, you can't beat baking your own ham. Yeah, so go ahead and give that a shot, okay? Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week. Hope it warms up wherever you are and uh, enjoy that ham, okay? All right, talk to you guys next week.